Hey everyone, welcome to the SaaS Ad Lab podcast where we bring to you the stories of SaaS founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. My name is Luis, founder of Phantom Agency, a digital marketing agency specializing in scaling SaaS companies. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Steve, Steve Pockross. He is the CEO over at Verbalio, and he brings more than 25 years of startup experience, Fortune 500 and, and nonprofit experience as well to the table uh, in his role at Verblio. And as a CEO, he applies leading gig economy and SaaS principles to provide a high quality, fast and flexible content creation platform. First of all, thank you so much, Steve, for being here with me. It's a pleasure having you. I've heard great things. I've seen you in other shows as well. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to chat and, and see what we can come up with. Now, tell me just, you know, for everybody that's on, on here and hasn't heard of you, a little bit of a background, you know, on, on what you've done so far and why you want to share your story. Great. So the thanks for having me, Luis. It's great, it's great to be here. Um, so we've had a really interesting ride. So we are a, Verblio is a content creation SaaS plus marketplace company. And I think the concept of SaaS plus is really one of the major directions that SaaS is taking in the next evolution, which is what else to add to it. And to me, it's a it's a highly curated marketplace of high, highly vetted talent um, to go with your SaaS solution. So how do people actually plug into the solution to provide something that's a more full service solution in the next wave of the economy? Uh, I've been working for similar companies um, starting in 2004. I had a really interesting ride seeing what these type of companies could do in the call center space. And we did some really innovative things growing a company to $150 million in revenue uh, by applying it to financial services and all sorts of work types that couldn't, you couldn't do this with a normal solution that didn't bring together the subject matter expertise and technology of SaaS together with highly curated talent. Right. Um, I think it's a fascinating space. I think it brings together two of the coolest trends in business. Uh, and I'm super fascinated by it. And I've been able to uh, enjoy that ride here at Verblio when I was offered to become the, the, the second CEO of the company uh, back in 2016. I saw all of these opportunities and I was uh, wanted to share with you kind of some of those secret sauces is how as we grew the company 400% in the last four years by t without taking any outsider investment money and basically doing kind of driving it all internally by using those principles. And I think you touched on something important there, right? And the fact that like SaaS really is starting to become the, well, I think one of the best ways to create wealth um, because it's very hands off essentially, right? Like once you kind of get it cracked, um, you know, you can, you see some solo founders that build their software company and they do very, very little once everything is, you know, put together in a system that just works by its own, uh, which I think is very cool. And, and I'm starting to see that a lot of people, you know, and you see people like Nathan Laka speak about this, but a lot of people just want to be part of the SaaS space because they see this potential. Um, so I think it's interesting. And obviously there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, growing something 400% in just three, three, four years. Um, and a lot of times I think, people also tend to kind of get that, you know, shiny object syndrome and think that, okay, it's going to be very simple. Um, and I think they're very surprised once they started dive in a little bit and find that there's a lot more to it than, you know, just writing a little bit of code and assuming that people are going to use it. Um, so I think it's interesting. So what could you tell us a little bit more of, you know, where you kind of came in as a second CEO, like you mentioned, where were things at and what were some of the things that you initially say, like, hey, this is what we're going to have to do to really start scaling this thing? Yeah, so I think there's, so 
I've taken over many divisions before and started new product divisions kind of multiple times throughout my 25 year career, as I'm sure many of your audience has, has as well. Uh, and there's very similar patterns when you're doing it as the CEO, there's just, you know, there's more complexity to it and there's more, uh, there's more, uh, there's more at stake, but at the same time you have more control, which is really empowering that this is, you can bring your vision to life. I really think that for all of these, as I think back through my career, there's kind of like two major prioritizations that need to occur when you sit down and you're like, where do I start? Here's the blank slate. I'm going to evaluate everything. I'm going to put everything through a matrix of where are we okay? Where are we behind? Where do we need to accelerate? What can wait? And all of these things. It's just a lot to put together. There's no perfect formula. I think the two key questions that I think about are, number one is, are we going to focus first on sales and marketing or improving the product? Um, where the vast majority of the resources go? You mm -hmm. just have to make a big call there and you can't say both. You can say both that both of them have to survive because if both of them have not survived by the end of your, uh, your project, you probably haven't survived. Um, but I think making a big call on where you want to invest most of your resources, especially uh, especially if you're bootstrapped, but even if you're not, you still have to figure out your focus. Right. And the second is the more classic framework. And I'll talk to you a little about kind of the decisions we made on both of these. Um, but the second big framework is um, the classic people, processes, or technology. Every problem can be fixed with one co some combination of the three of those. So where do you want to put your effort uh, as a CEO or as a product leader, as a division leader, um, because your time means everything and everybody has a natural inclination towards one of those solutions. And so we went really, really big on people as everything. Um, and I think everybody has talked about kind of the Jim Collins, get the people on the bus first for a very long time, but what it means and how do you bring that to life, I think is really critical. Uh, and that's something I think we can, uh, I can add to the story too, at least from our perspective. Yeah, I think you know, it, it is a lot of thinking and I guess to, to the way I'm seeing it, right. To, to what you mentioned about, do we focus on the product or do we focus on marketing and sales? It's hard to choose which one, right? If you focus on marketing and sales, but you don't have a good product, then what happens? And if you focus on the product, but you're not doing marketing and sales, then the same thing happens, right? Nothing. Um, so, so is it going at, you know, okay, let's focus on marketing at sales for this period of time. And then once we do that and see some, you know, initial feedback, do we go back to the product, work on that and then back and forth and just start jumping back and forth between the two? Or how do you kind of figure out the sweet spot in order to, like you said, not to do, right? Work on both at the same time. Yeah, no, it's a deep puzzle. I'm sure all of you, everybody on this call, everybody who's listening to this has probably been through the exact same dilemma. Right. I just had fun. I was trying to explain to my 13-year-old what I do the other day, and I was explaining to the concept of, uh, I said, all right, imagine, because he lives on his phone, imagine you have a new phone, but it's not as good as everybody else's phone, but you need to sell a lot more phones in order to pay to build a better phone. Do you go out and sell a crappier phone as much as possible so you get more money? Or do you invest everything you have in the better phone and hope that you can sell it later? Which is basically, you could see the perplexity on his face of like, oh, I have no solution for that. So, um, so this is how we solved it. So 
First of all, there's no perfect solution. You're just always going to have to just suffer the consequences of the place you don't invest and make sure that you can, uh, you can absorb that decision. And so the first thing that I did, I had enough resources to hire one executive who had been there and done it before, which is, uh, which is a very hard thing because in general, when you're hiring a, start, hiring a startup, you want the people who have all done these things, who have had more experience than you in every, every, every possible level. I had enough for to invest in one. I don't think this is an uncommon experience. So I had been fortunate enough that my right hand on uh, the marketing side had worked with me at six consecutive companies. He's amazing. I trust him implicitly. And he can also model all of the behaviors within the company that I'm looking for. The funny thing is that I hired him to do less marketing. So you would think that this is the place that I would go big, but we focused all as much as possible on improving the product. Um, when we did our evaluation, we had just fallen behind slowly. Like we started off with the hot product in five years in content marketing in the hot SEO space, things are competitive out there. Yeah. There's like, you can fall around quick, fall behind quickly if you're not innovating every year. So not only did we have to catch up, then we had to get ahead. Then we had to make sure we stayed ahead. And so we made our big bet on product and allocated my marketing guy to spend as much time supporting that as possible. But I also had, we worked together because we've seen a lot more tricks. Um, kind of what are some of the hacks on the marketing side? We focused on some of the very much easier go-to-market strategies that you can do if you have an existing client base. And so for me, the top three strategies of most effective, high ROI, but least investment marketing are number one, content and SEO. So we'd already been doing that. Uh, I had been blessed by the previous CEO who was a, who was a journalist that he blogged for five days, uh, five days a week since 2010. Our domain authority was sky high. We were finding a thousand new clients per year. I realized that this is a gift that very few other companies have, but it means that the faucet was going to keep coming and that my job was then at the next two places to look at what could I do with this incoming? So what other services and offerings would they want to have? So could I increase my revenue by 20 to 30% just by selling more things that my clients actually want, which we did. And that is much more low effort than going out and spending a ton of ad money or investing in agencies and things of that nature. And the third was to look at the, what I call the absolute hidden least understood of the four P's of marketing, which is pricing, which is, are we priced appropriately? Could I just raise my price 10%? Uh, and what could I do with that? Um, because I think we were actually deeply under market on pricing. We hadn't adjusted prices in five years and it was affecting the quality of the product. I couldn't pay my writers enough because I wasn't charging the clients. Um, and it's very hard to know. There's very few things harder to figure out in the world of business than sure. is my product priced appropriately. Yeah. I, so I, those I, are the from, from my experience too, in, in dealing with, with software, um, you know, companies and, and, I think with most um, with most products, you typically see that there's and, and there's there's not a big effort on pricing. You just kind of land at something, and that something sticks for whatever reason for you know a long period of time. Um, and it's not something that people try to optimize as often as you know all oh, its work on the website or the SEO or something like that. But I think pricing is one of those levers that you can tweak, and I mean you you're probably going to get the fastest feedback on it, right? Because it's at the forefront of the decision-making for your customers. And you can, you can really 
negatively or, uh, you know, possibly impact growth by just doing something small there that maybe your customers don't even like blink an eye to just pay that extra, you know, $10 a month or whatever it might be, uh, which could have, a, a like I said, a, just a big impact on your end. Completely. Uh, so if there's, if there's no other piece of guidance that you take away from this and you don't already have it on your calendar, every three months, ask every executive to have a meeting with your leadership team. Are we priced appropriately, not just on the core product, but on all aspects of the product for every segment? And at least ask yourself that question because you should be adjusting prices at least in a little way, at least once every six to 12 months. Uh, it will change your business. When we asked Mike, when we asked our clients, would you pay more for a higher level product? Every single one of them said they would gladly pay more if we just provided better quality. And the only way I'm going to get that is to provide a better experience and better writers. So uh, it all comes together. I have one other piece of pricing tidbit that, uh, that somebody told me along the way. So I had the pleasure of working with some pricing consultants who turned out every pricing consultant is kind of like an agency. There's somebody who had worked at pricing at a large company and they did it once. And then they're like, nobody else knows about this. So I'm going to become an agency and talk about pricing. And so I asked him what he did at eBay. Um, I can't even remember what he did at eBay, but he said that afterwards, like his number one uh, advice was he, the only thing he could look at for if you're priced appropriately if you can't do a ton of A-B testing, which a lot of us can't in B2B SaaS, like you don't have enough customers to actually test a lot of this stuff, right. is your exit reasons for why people are leaving your platform. And if less than 10% of them say it's your pricing's too high, then your pricing isn't high enough. That's good. And I think it's very easy to test that, right? You have your customer page, you send them a quick email and asked. Um, so I think that's cool. What are some of the other things that you guys tweaked in order to get to that 400% growth? Got it. So the, the first prioritization was the marketing versus, uh, versus product innovation. So it kind of gave you the quick hacks in marketing and sales in order to move up. We did not hire a salesperson until we'd already grown 200%. So um, that was another one of our, our hacks. On the product side, I think there were a few big... Um, strategic decisions that we put in the ground. The first was uh, to plant our flag on who our target market would be, which is before it was all SMBs, which at the time was perfectly fine. And things just had to get a lot more focused if we were gonna carve out what value we were gonna deliver and how we communicate that value. And so we put a flag in the ground of focusing on digital marketing agencies and that. The second we did that, our all of our business started to grow. Agencies knew that we were thinking about them. We were building a product for their needs. We were communicating in a way that they understood. Uh, and life just got easier the second that we kind of, uh, we, made, we bit the bullet and, and gave up other segments. Right. The second was um, the quality of the writing. I talked a little about that last time that we just had to become the premium writer. SEO used to be words on a page uh, with consistency and now quality was a huge part of it. So how did we rethink our marketplace in order to deliver that? Um, there's a lot of secret sauce to that, but I won't go too deep. I think the third is deeply interesting to me and I hope will be interesting to other SaaS providers, which was provide professional services. Um, and so this is kind of like heresy in SaaS land, yeah. Uh, and the place where, you know, I have two levels of people involved in my business, which is heresy. Uh, one is I have all of these writers that are on my SaaS mark are, are on my SaaS platform, and the second is that 
what we found is we created a self-service marketplace and we went out to our agencies, our target market and asked them what they needed. And they said, before delivering SEO strategy was a big part in the implementation of content was our highest level of value. It no longer is. We need to provide higher level of value in other ways. Can you deliver this yourselves? So basically I will hire you an account management service to deliver yourself service platform, but I'm not going to use you unless you have that. So basically we had to create professional services in a couple ways. One is our client base was demanding it. So it's about 15% of our revenue right now, which I think is a, a good healthy amount. Yeah. It made all of the revenue coming from those key clients so much stickier because they now had a face and it leverages my people, which is our key competitive advantage in order to make those relationships even stickier. So I know services is a uh, sacre bleu in the SaaS world, but I really think it can drive your business. And the bigger you grow, the faster you grow, the smaller part it becomes of it, but can really help jumpstart growth. What are some other ways that you think, not just verbally, but other companies could implement some sort of professional service? So I think a lot, of, there's kind of like, there's two levels to it. There's one is, do they... Do you need to offer somebody to just run your core service for them, right? Which every every SaaS leader is probably thinking that my my platform is so intuitive, everybody's going to get it. And then you take a step back and you think of all the SaaS products that you have, and you're now managing 50, 70 of them. You have to become an expert in every one of them. But especially if you're a very intensive business, like content creation requires a lot of back and forth. It's not easy SaaS. It is not like you think back now and like billing mechanisms and things like that now seem easy compared to the stuff that the next generation has to get into. Right. So could you make the lives of your customers a lot easier because it's there's actually a big switching cost in order to join you? Can you lower the switching cost uh, and make them stick with you longer? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one. The second one is professional, like other services where you could actually drive a lot of revenue and value at a, at a reasonable rate. So like for us, we now create videos. We now create uh, SEO optimization with our special with a team that's specialized in doing this. We drive a significant amount of revenue from doing these services that both help our clients drive revenue for us and make those clients all stickier. So I think it's looking at that landscape of everything you could do. What's what's what do your clients need? What's easy? Where's the revenue? And find that Venn diagram. Right. Okay. I think that's good. I think a lot of times, like, it's just very labor intensive and that's the problem, right? People don't like to, like, they want to work on the least resistance hack that they can find instead of, you know, okay, let's really sit down and and find something that's going to move the needle, like the the big bets, right? Essentially, like, I think providing a professional service for a SaaS company is 100 and 50% of big bet. And they're just not willing to put in that time and risk of that time, right? Because it could be allocated elsewhere. Um, but it's just deciding we're going to try this, we're going to do it and sitting down and executing on it. But I think it's easier to say in hindsight than. No, I think you're totally right. So it, I think what you're saying is it can be a complete competitive advantage if you take a different route, which is I think most entrepreneurs, especially if you're a product-led company, think about what's easiest for me, uh, which is 
you know, the thing that requires me to talk to the least amount of people. So especially right. in engineering land, oh my God, would I love to do a product that required no humans involved. The <laughs> second is like, what has the highest investor multiple? So man, it's SaaS revenue. I get 10 times my revenue is my valuation and it's services. It's only 0.5 or one. Well, I definitely shouldn't do it. And I think that is your opportunity. You are thinking you should think about the value for the client. What's going to be the stickiest. If you build it with the service, maybe you can turn it into a product later and maybe you get more people to stick to your product later. But the value for the client and the pain point of the client is what is what entrepreneurs should be focused on, not on what's easiest for them or right. what's the highest multiple later. hundred percent. And I don't think people should be starting or running a business on the sole idea of what can I sell this for? Um, I think, you know, I don't know if it's ethically wrong, but I don't think if that's the goal you're spending time doing what you really want to do in a sense. Um, I think so ethically, I totally agree with you. Uh, I wish the world was that way. I don't think it's as intentional as I'm, as all of that. I think it's, you take on giant investor money, investors are looking for 10 times their, their returns. And all of a sudden your thinking just naturally changes. And I'm just asking that people be very aware of why they're thinking about something. What are the motivations? Is it because the business has to do this or because the clients really want this? Yeah. Sir, big questions. <laughs> big, big uh, questions. What are some of the things that throughout this entire journey? So I know you, you mentioned focusing mainly on um, the product itself, right? Throughout these three, four years of, of period where you saw this 400% growth, what, where, and you brought on, uh, I don't remember if it was a CMO, uh, CMO, you brought him on and you told him to do less marketing. What was the marketing that he cut back on? Um, well, there wasn't that much to cut back on at that point. So I would say he just did less of the new stuff. I think okay. the, the main, t the main other takeaway that I think if you don't mind me kind of like, uh, refocusing is what do we do with the other people? which I think is our other killer advantage um, that I think is also something to that your audience can use to help restart growth, which is everyone else that we hired at the company, we basically focused on their, uh, how they, their traits and their, uh, their ability to drive us forward without having done any of this experience before. And so if you're willing to hire people like that, and find you can actually get access to unique talent that others aren't looking for because if most people are looking for more of a resume of people with that experience. But it also means, so I have access to amazing talent and my, my number one example is my head of all operations, clients and writers, 1,000 clients, 3,000 writers. She's and a, a staff of 20 people. She's never managed one person before she took this job, but she's a superstar. Um, and if you're willing to go out and take the risk and find those people, you can jumpstart your company to a whole new level without investing all of the overhead. Like my company would not have had nearly enough people to do it. But at the same time, what does that mean for my focus? As an executive, it meant that I had to focus a ton internally. I could not be a sales guy. I could not be on a call with clients all the time, just letting the company go. Mm -hmm. I had to be working to up-level my team. 
I invested in an executive coach instead of a marketing agency to up-level my team because the people that you bring on are going to be developing your product and your processes and your strategy. Um, so it's a pretty big strategic decision, especially if you're an external first focus person or an engineer product focus person that you're going to be spending the vast majority of your time internally working on meetings because you're the most experienced person and you want everybody at your company to be as high level as possible. Right. What are some other things that you've seen that people are typically not doing wrong, but they could improve on? For growing a company? Yeah. Or it's super hard. I think, I think, in marketing, everybody believes that there's – so one of my favorite uh, quotes from Rory Sutherland in, uh, about marketing, the author of, Ad, uh, of Al- Alchemy, is that there are no best practices in marketing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my key things that people are doing wrong is they think that there's a formula in marketing that is the exact same as everything else. You learn it, you go to school in it, and then you implement it, and all of a sudden you're there. If you're doing everybody else's best practices, you're probably losing because you're not doing anything new and creative. So I think that they're both trying to emulate what everybody else is doing instead of finding their own way. And second is they're not finding one key thing that you're good at. For us, it's content and SEO, and we are going to make great, compelling content again and again and again. Uh, it doesn't have to be the same for everybody else, but find one thing that you're good at um, to right. narrow in. So that's my that's my marketing takeaway side. Yeah, and I think you touched on something important there, which is I don't know I don't know your thoughts on it, right? But sometimes, um, like we we work with software companies, right? And sometimes our clients will send us an, an article um, from a specific. I don't want to bring any names in here, but like from a specific, more of a thought leader, you know, type of well-known uh, program or something like that. And they'll ask you, um, do you know this method or do you do this thing and stuff like that? And I feel like it takes away from the originality of the things that we're trying to do. And they just want to see something that somebody said worked uh, implemented for whatever reason, um, and it's kind of like what you said, right? They're trying to apply all these things that they've seen as a best practice or something without necessarily viewing things from their point of view and trying to personalize it to their company. That makes sense. I think that's exactly right. And then also what's what I'm hearing from your statement is something that is also one of the big challenges is like not committing to a strategy, having a really lame test. You put out five pieces of content, you didn't improve sales by five. So you're going to move on to the next thing, fire your CMO, move on to the next person and uh, you'll never get anywhere. Right. Right. Um, What happens after you reach 400% growth in three years? Like from a, expectation standpoint like are you looking to okay now let's double that next year or is it let's slowly keep you know working away at what we're doing or do we have to find more hacks to get to 800 percent growth in the next three to four years or what does that look like because it feels like as just like 
as a CEO, right? Like you see this growth and, and you get happy about it. Um, is it enough? The great thing about being bootstrapped is that question is so much more manageable. If you, uh, <laughs> if you aren't bootstrapped and your VCs saw that you just grew that much, they are going to be so excited and your targets are about to go insane. Yeah. Uh, the great thing about bootstrapped is I, you know, we're, my board is so manageable. I have, it's a board of five of us and two are the, the founders of the company put in their blood, sweat and tears in order to get it where it is. And then I have two uh, external, our external advisors who are tech experts and uh, uh, as, as startups will do. And so my goal is to grow at a really reasonable but aggressive rate. So I'm trying to grow through 30 to 50% per year unless I take funding. And taking funding is something that I have to keep considering as far as there's so many more options of what I could do with that money right now, whether it's accelerate my own growth or take advantage of so many inorganic opportunities for M&A. So I think the key is to stay on target. My, I have a, I have a goal for three years out. I want us to be a 50 million valued company within three years. And I think it's totally reasonable. And as long as all my metrics keep working towards that, I don't have to go crazy. I think I have a harder, my bigger challenge is keeping my team motivated. So they keep achieving growth and that we stay up with the market and keep delivering extreme value to our clients than it is to create artificial financial incentives that could throw everything astray. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing worse than like when you're really killing it and you feel like you're failing because you gave yourself way too big of a target. Interesting. And I think the way you put it, like you have this, I think you said 30 to 50% uh, year over year growth, which I think it's good, but still, right. If you go over that, then that's just a bonus. Great. Nobody's going to fire me for that. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, well, great, Steve. It's a pleasure having you on here. I really appreciated the conversation and some of those pieces of gold uh, that you shared throughout the, the entire recording. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? I just had to found this. So you can find us at verblio.com, V-E-R-B-L-I-O.com. We try to make our website as fun and engaging as possible with lots of fun content along the way. So hopefully... It'll be worthwhile to get there for anybody who's trying to do content at scale for every niche. Uh, and then I also have my own podcast uh, called, soon to be called, uh, The Yes and Marketing Show, where I interview marketing leaders as well. Uh, and you can find me on SpockRoss at LinkedIn.com, S-P-O-C-K-R-O-S-S. Uh, and I hope you guys check out that show too. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Steve. And uh, for everyone that's watching, make sure you like, subscribe. Uh, if you like the content, give us a review and don't forget to check out Steve, give him a follow, connect with him on LinkedIn and uh, check out his podcast. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Luis. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care.